Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul, uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Context and Clarity has been called a community-based pro-practice masterclass for architects. It's awfully high praise, but since we began this journey back in April of 2020, we've certainly grown into a community of small firm architects, all focused on what matters most to their success. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you're the employee of a firm that's dreaming of going out on your own, or you've owned your own firm for 26 years. There's something here for everyone. And that's where you come in. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Context and Clarity Podcast. Every week, we have a conversation with an expert or a thought leader on things that matter most to the success of architects just like you. Then we go backstage with someone from our community and we talk about what we learned, what our biggest takeaways were, and how we're going to apply what we heard to our own businesses. In this episode, we talked with Matias Del Campo. Matias is one of the few return guests that we've had on Context and Clarity Live. He's a co-founder of the Architectural Practice Span and a director of the Architecture and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Design at the University of Michigan. And he's also the author of both Neural Architecture, Design and Artificial Intelligence, and Machine Hallucinations, Architecture and Artificial Intelligence. Now, from that introduction, you may have figured out that Matthias is a thought leader and an expert in the field of artificial intelligence, especially as it can and will impact the built environment. When Matthias first joined us on Context and Clarity Live earlier this year, we talked about AI and architecture, and he touched briefly on the topic of ethics and AI. And that intrigued me. I'd never given any thought to the impact of things that are as fundamental as how the data that feeds the AI, where does it come from? How is it gathered? 
is the process implicitly biased against the people the solution is ultimately designed to serve? All of that fascinated me when he brought it up. So we take up the conversation again about AI and architecture, this time with a focus on the ethical implications. And of course, one of the most popular questions was, when will AI be able to generate my construction documents for me? Catherine McPhail joined me once again for both the conversation with Matias Del Campo and backstage afterward. Catherine is my co-host, and she's an architect and a podcaster in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. In addition to Context and Clarity, Catherine hosts Talking Home Renovations with the House Maven, and she's the CEO of Demios Architects. As always, I'm looking forward to talking about our takeaways from the conversation, so let's go backstage and listen in as Catherine and I talk about our conversation with Matias Del Campo, architect, author, educator, and futurist. So obviously, uh, Matias Del Campo is uh, steeped in artificial intelligence, AI, and architecture, and, and everything that it has to do with the built environment. Matias joined us on Context and Clarity Live a few months ago, and the reason I wanted to have him back was, it, it was almost a side note to that conversation because we were talking about uh, AI and the impact that it's already had and the impact that it's going to have on architecture. And he mentioned this idea of ethics and artificial intelligence. And, and you know, the, there's a part of my brain that, that went, what's that? You know, what do ethics have to do with artificial intelligence? And so we talked about it for a minute and, and, you know, I just thought we need to have him come back to talk specifically about ethics and AI because it was a can of worms that I wasn't expecting. Um, so that's, so that's why we had him back. He came back to talk about more about artificial intelligence and architecture, but also ethics and artificial intelligence. I think because he is so steeped in this uh, AI situation that he, the way he thinks about it is very different than the way we think about it. I don't mean just you and I, but even the community and I, when we were talking about it, we are thinking about it in terms of, uh, he said, more science fiction, like more of what we're thinking of is androids and science fiction and all that stuff and being evil, you know, like the potential for it being evil. And really the only thing that's evil or greedy are the humans who are who are programming the AI. So that's what we should really be afraid of rather than the AI itself, which he said is not sinister, which is true. And I guess we probably because of movies and books and everything, we can't help but think of AI as being in human form. And that was kind of funny to me because at another point he said, we're so self-infatuated. Why would machines turn into human forms <laughs> yeah. like well because they always do and also that the machines don't have any sense of competition and this whole thing about us feeling like they're going to take our jobs and um he was just saying not to be worried um you know being displaced as a human being because that's that's just not the way he's thinking about it and i think it's interesting that the average person on the street maybe thinks of it that way we're afraid of what we don't know right and so I guess that's a that's maybe an explanation for what you just said. It's like he he thinks about it very differently than we do, a hundred percent. One because he knows, and and because we don't. But uh, he he does. He I think he said that the first time that he joined us for Context and Clarity Live, and then he definitely did this time. He said, 
you know, we think about it like in terms of science fiction. And I think from what I can tell from our conversations, he's looking at it not only, I think, in a more granular sense, but definitely as tools rather than, you know, some... There, there, there will always be somebody that, that makes a comment or asks a question at, when we're live about uh, sentient, sentient beings, you know, and and you know he's looking at AI as this tool to identify crosswalks, you know, for that will eventually f- feed into a uh, uh, an electric car, or self driving car, or something like that, or a tool that does this, you know, these these sort of bit parts, I guess. Not as, uh, I hadn't thought about it the way you just said it, but why do we always think it's going to take on human form? He's not at all looking at it like that. So that's, that's, a, that's a good point. He was talking about in all these fantastic and wonderful ways that AI are contributing or is contributing or are contributing. Is that plural or singular? No, I don't know. I don't know. AI is contributing, let's say, to uh, our to the benefit of us humans, like in medical roles of AI is like able to do all sorts of things that humans aren't really allowed to do or aren't able to do as quickly. Also, um, he was talking about with architecture, how it optimizes the, um, the systems and the consumption of materials can be, can be um, kind of controlled in a way that we don't, we waste a lot of materials and it affects everything, um, our environment in a bad way. We can, he's saying we could optimize plans and sections to improve the living conditions of a lot of people. So so the way he's looking at it is all these ways that AI can make things um, better. Right. And and we just go straight to AI taking our jobs. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's That always comes up, doesn't it? Um, yeah. I, I want to give a shout out to uh, Ed Shannon, who during one of our Context and Clarity conversations at some point this week, Ed said, you know, I remember when CAD became a thing and everybody said, oh, CAD's going to take our jobs. And then I remember when uh, BIM became a thing and, and, oh, everybody says BIM's going to take our jobs. And now AI is becoming a thing and AI is going to, and, and Ed's point was, I'm still working, right? CAD didn't take my job. BIM didn't take my job. AI is not going to take my job. And I, I think, you know, when you, t- when you take a step back and have that perspective, I think it's exactly right. You know, how, how, how is this possibly going to take all of your training, all of your knowledge, all of your wisdom, all of your experience? It's not. It's just not. It's, it's very good at, at crunching data um, and doing uh, necessarily well-defined tasks, right? It's the AI doesn't make up the tasks. You have to define the tasks that it's going to do. So, um, it's, it's not going to take those things. And, you know, as you said, and as, as Matias said, um, and, and, and others that we've talked to this year in, on uh, context and clarity live about the different tools that are coming or some of them are already here and they'll be refined. This is all about giving us more powerful tools. And, you know, I've been, I've been working on this kitchen renovation for a while. We've, we were talking about this before we went live 
there are decisions that I eventually make, you know, maybe it's how to square this thing up or, you know, what the dimension of this, that, or the others that I might eventually just give up and, and guess because I'm out of brain power, right? I'm tired or whatever it is. And AI is not going to do that. AI can calculate all of these things and it can do all of these things, which applied in certain ways makes it better than me or, you know, a human. There, there are a ton of things that we don't consider because we don't have time. The deadline is looming. We don't have all of the information at our fingertips. What, you know, whatever the reasons are, very human reasons, lazy something, I don't know, you know, whatever they are, you fill in the blank for yourself as you're listening to this. You get tired where machines don't necessarily get tired. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can, you can consider all sorts of possibilities if you have that tool to help you do that. And to me, that's, that's the biggest benefit to it all. All these things that you mentioned that Ed had said was going to take our jobs. I also remember that as well, but they've all made every step of the way. It's made it way easier. It was CAD. Once I learned it and I was no longer threatened by it, it was so much easier than taking all the sheets on and off the boards all the time. And then now with BIM, it is so much easier just to be able to show my clients and to see myself what something's going to look like in 3D and design in that way. So yeah, we're just afraid of things at first and we don't, we don't really want to, um, we just, jump right to the things that could be bad about it. But um, what he was saying was um, ethical, like the ethics of it. Uh, He was saying that white European men, if they're the ones who are the dominant people, let's say, in the world, and if they are the ones who are programming all the AI, then that's kind of a problem. And it's a, it's a, it is a problem. And this is an opportunity to make it more diverse by having more, all different types of people giving the information or training the AI. So ethical implications are, especially when it's about AI, is questions like, for example, where does the data come from that they're using to train or network? So, for example, there's this example of uh, one of the largest data sets in use called ImageNet, which is the basis, for example, for a majority of automated car applications, spatial recognition, things like that. And how this uh, data set was put together is that um, it, it was using a service called the Mechanical Turk. Yeah? And the Mechanical Turk sounds like it should be an AI that basically labels the images. But that's not what happens here. What happens here is that you upload your images to this, to this label, and then those images go to, um, to a farm in India where there is people sitting around. We're getting pay pennies per image that they label, yeah? In accord work. So the more images they label, the more they earn, of course, yeah? Uh, which also leads to a lot of problems, right? I mean, not only they have the, the sort of underpaid um, uh, kind of labor here, which is unfairly paid, but at the same time also, you have these people who are labeling things that they might not understand entirely or that they culturally do not understand, which leads to a lot of biases in those datasets. Yeah? The first datasets, for example, were done around Silicon Valley. Yeah? So they're all biased towards white, male, European thinking. Yeah? 
So there's like this old ethical implication here about cultural biases, racial biases, and so on and so forth, which we unfortunately have inherited now until today from those beginnings. Yeah. Um, so if we want to talk about ethical use of AI, we really need to understand more clearly where does the data come from, how was it generated, why was it generated that way, and how we can create data that are more culturally inclusive, racially diverse, and so on and so forth. That are like the ethical questions that not only touch on architecture, they touch on any field where you are networked. So thank you, Christian, a lot for that question. It was a short answer. I could talk more about this. But I think it's important, for me at least, it's very important to talk about it because I'm flatly aware that in architecture there is absolutely no sentiment for what data sets actually do and why they're important and why there's an ethical discussion about it. Why we need that discussion. Yeah? The same with plans. Like where does these plans come from? Are they, this is only Western architecture. Yeah? This is only Western architecture. So I'm actually trying to, to, to somehow make my contribution with doing the, something called the common house data set, which is a data set about um, uh, apartment plans where we're intentionally trying to get people from all over the world to annotate those, not only from Michigan, not only from the US, but from everywhere in the world. Um, and uh, people have been contributing to this, and, and this is going to help to create a data set that is more culturally inclusive and more diverse. It does not only keep us a bias towards a specific direction of architecture because it would just continue what we've been doing in the last hundred years, which is basically to, to emphasize the, the dominance of Western architecture in the world. Yeah, yeah. The, the way I've boiled that down in my head for my own understanding is that where the data comes from matters. And this is part of what I had never considered when, you know, when I was talking about the first conversation that we had with Matthias is, okay, well, the AI is just going to do this. Well, the data has got to be input into the AI somehow, or it has to be accessible to the AI somehow. Where does that data come from? And uh, we were actually talking about this in one of my classes the other night. You know, if uh, maybe a really easy way for somebody to understand is, hey, if, if you are designing a home or, or any type of building for the northeast coast of Maine, you don't want to be gathering data about how to design that home from projects that were designed and constructed for Houston, Texas. It's a it's a completely different climate. It's a completely different region. Um, so that again, just a really simple example of you know just baseline. The data really matters, and I think you know to that ethical point that you were making, which which uh, Matthias talked about, is when we have and we do have implicit biases. And those are fed into the AI data, not, I guess, because it's implicit bias, not intentionally by definition, it just happens to go, happens to be part of the data. It's going to be biased against something or someone. And the question becomes, what's the application for that data, for that project, for whatever this AI is, is tr trained to do? 
if we have an, an implicit bias against or that doesn't support the purpose, then it's, then it's completely problematic. And, and that's, that's the part that I had not picked up on. I keep thinking about this, this dating app that I saw advertised that's only for certain people. So the algorithm for that particular dating app would be valuing things that I don't value. So, yeah, because obviously somebody's going to be training this dating app to find other people who are good in the sense that it wouldn't be me. Like they wouldn't think I was good for sure, because I have certain uh, less, I have certain values that they don't like. So uh, anyway, so it's just kind of interesting because even all those, that's all AI too, all the algorithms of those things. And anyway, he was also talking about how it's just everywhere. You know, anytime we do some kind of games with things being overlaid on our faces or just the ethics too of us doing it rather than being paying people, let's say, as he mentioned in India to do it, like for a penny an image. So instead right. of that, we're doing the work for free and taking away work from other people who get paid something to do it. Even in your entertainment, it's already full of AI. Like, for example, if you use uh, certain filters, I don't going to mention companies now here, but uh, there are certain filters that you use for entertainment that paint funny things on your face, right? These are all triggered, of course, and using neural networks to, first of all, recognize your face and be able to position anything on it. But on the other side, um, at the same time, this information is, of course, used to train them to get, become better in facial recognition. So there's like this two-way street. Nothing is for free, also in this new uh, universe of AI applications that are surrounding us. So there's always a sort of exchange going on between you providing data, they learn on the data, and then they provide you with entertainment in some way or the other form. He was very careful not to mention any company names, but I think we could, <laughs> we could kind of come up with, okay, I know who he's talking about when he's talking about the filters and things like that, but... Yeah, there's a lot of information about all of us out there, like a lot of information about us, like how far apart our eyes are, probably our iris imprint thingies, whatever it's called. You know, it's not my field. But anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just funny because he's right. Humans are the ones who are greedy and evil, and it's not AI. Yeah, bringing it, bringing it back around. I mean, there, there are plenty, there's plenty of research, plenty of documentary out there on what could go wrong and not the science fiction version, but like real life version. We've already seen some things that, that could go very wrong, Cambridge Analytica and things like that. And the, I don't remember the name of that documentary anymore that was on Netflix. It was about the Cambridge Analytica story, I guess. But I watched that and I was fascinated and I was terrified and I was angered, you know, um, uh, lot, lots of different emotions there. But at the end of the day, like you said at the very beginning, it's the humans, right? All It's humans doing something, humans guiding the data. And, and all the AI is, um, is doing is crunching numbers, I guess, to, you know, to, to really oversimplify it. I think the, I think the, uh, uh, the documentary is called the great hack maybe. Um, but I, you know, that's another illustration of the fact that it's, it's the humans, it's not the machines. 
And how do we apply that to architecture? You know, how does that show up in architecture? Well, you know, he, he, he gave the example of a project that they're working on where they're gathering data from all around the world on, uh, I think it's on uh, multifamily units. And I think, you know, that's something that we just really have to keep in mind is does, do the data sources that we're gathering from actually relate to wherever we're doing this project? You know, if, if it's that type of thing, I know a lot of people are, are interested in when is AI going to start doing, uh, start producing our construction documents for us. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I forget, I think, I think Matias said just in a, in a few years, he sees that as being possible, but he said a few hours from now, I think is what he said in the, maybe in the grand timeline of things, like not right. very long from now. Right. Yeah. Not, not very long from now. And, and there are people that will just shudder to, to hear that. But I think that's one of the best things that could happen. The program I already use has all this capability that I don't use. So I need to, I, I just need to discipline myself to learn how to use my full program. And then already, I think I'll be along the way to construction documents. Because if in BIM, if you build the wall with the actual materials that you want in the wall and you build the model exactly precisely right, and then you could just push a button almost, and then it just comes out. Not really push a button, but you say, I want this at one inch equals a foot scale. You can cut the section, and there you go. It's all perfect. And it's just not, um, I'm just not personally there where I can I can build it like that. It just takes too much time. So anyway, it's my own fault for not learning the program. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of it, definitely. But, you know, on the flip side of that, I have a couple of teams of students in, in my, in one of my classes that are working on projects right now that are just mind blowing that have to do with, okay, well, how do we take the tools that we have as a, for instance, you know, call it Revit or something, a BIM, BIM program. And then how do we take the data from there and combine it with the data from here? And, you know, with a couple of clicks here, not only do we have a BIM model, but we have a total up to the minute um, construction material cost. We, we won't have the labor in it because that's up to the to, up to the contractor. But they're they're talking about how do you pull uh, cost data from three or four different lumber yards, let's say, and, and then you know stuff like that. This is. This is where these kind of technologies really excite me because that's where, you know, if you could tell a client, well, a client comes to you and says, oh, my budget is this, or how much will this cost? Well, here, let's figure it out. Do this, that, and the other. Oh, well, we make this change. Okay, this is how it affects the the material cost here. And if that's built into a tool that you have, I mean, I, I think I glanced at uh, Facebook over the over the weekend, the face the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. There were several questions in there about construction cost. What these students are talking about would basically be something like a plug in to your your BIM program that you don't you don't even ask those questions anymore. It's just popping up on your screen. Yeah, can you imagine just had the price tag right there of all the materials as you make like move a wall or make something bigger? Imagine the value that you could bring to your clients if you had those those tools at your fingertips, right? And and 
would would that be the end of value engineering? Uh, I guess it would kind of marble it throughout the pro the whole process, mm -hmm. right? Because you would be making decisions yeah, yeah, in the moment that's, that's based a good on point. that. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're always you're always um, prioritizing and, and making value decisions. Mm -hmm. But yeah. but not I guess not at the what I was thinking is not at the point where you've done the entire set of CDs and now somebody starts yeah cutting yeah. and hacking and whatever. I think it would but, be better to do it along the way. That's why I like to have a contractor on the team as we're going forward, right? So it would be the same idea in a way. Also, it would be great if you could get uh, different window manufacturers. So if you decide you're going to go with this line or this line or this line, like the cheapest window you could possibly get, which anyway, and then to the windows you really want. So you could see them right there. And I know you can send them out to get um, get prices, but it would be different if you could have it real time. Mm-hmm, 100%. That's what, that's what these students are working yeah, on. Yeah, I love that idea. Well, good, I hope they finish up soon. Well, it kind of as ties into what he was talking about with authorship in a, in a way, because um, he was saying humans are kind of, we seem to be very concerned about authorship and in the way that our jobs would be taken away from us because then we're not the real true authors of this whole thing or whatever it may be. And he was pointing out throughout art, the history of art and architecture that they're, who is actually the author of any of these things are all built by teams anyway. So we're just a little bit too hung up on, too hung up on that, but I don't know. Yeah, it's just like that's just another part of your team in my mind are these tools that if you're lucky enough to have them can make your life a lot easier. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that the discussion of authorship is just fascinating. I, I'm sure it, it <laughs> again, I think this is another uh, another thing because I, because then what happens at some point, I think we very quickly get to the idea of copyright. Maybe the underlying current of all of this is that one of the things that's threatened is is sort of some of these ideas that we've held on to well the, you know the the copyright belongs to me well okay but like you were saying it's a team and part of the team is the code book and part of the team is you know there's there's all different players in this arena that we're not considering you know we're we're taking credit for something you know, maybe it's an idea, maybe it's a design, maybe it's a construction documents because you're putting that copyright stamp on your, or, or that copyright language on your, uh, uh, on your title blocks. But then what happens when the tools are expanded and you are gathering data from all over the place that didn't come from your brain, you know, um, how much of what you're already doing is actually coming from your brain that that's completely unique that's never been done before well what did you think did you hear something in there that you can use in your practice today if you were so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire context and clarity live episode head on over to the entree architect youtube channel there's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity live episodes. And if you want more of the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week, give us a thumbs up and subscribe wherever you consume podcasts. If you like content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment, and it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know you'll find something there that interests you.
You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And one last thing before you go. If the topic of today's episode is of particular interest to you, join me over on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern inside the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. That's where every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern, I host Context and Clarity Conversations, and we take topics like this, and we dig deeper. We have a conversation in real time to try to find more clarity around the things that matter most to you. So thanks for listening. I hope our time together has inspired you to think about your community and your practice and how you can support those around you. We'll be back here again next week. And in the meantime, I hope you'll join me and the Entree Architect community on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern so that we can help each other find more clarity around the topics that matter most, no matter what your context is. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.